Good morning. It's great to see everybody. Really appreciate those songs, John. I'm a very visual person, so that that last song, it used to be uh, my favorite hymn. It's hard to say what my favorite is with so many different hymns that have such powerful lyrics, but just the scene of, of that song has always really resonated with me. I really appreciate that song very much. Um, and I want to say something really quickly about just the nature of things as they are with the work here right now. Um, you know, with the coronavirus, there's a lot of concern that I've had that the isolation would result in um, a lot of withdrawal in zeal of being together. Um, but what I've seen, what even I have seen, is quite the opposite. Um, you know, this may sound very uncomfortable to some, potentially, but uh, the past few weeks, even I have been, or even the past month, um, we've been able to spend more time with brethren in the past month than we were spending even before the coronavirus. You know, you have Paul and Victoria wanting to place membership with the group, uh, Brandon wanting to place membership with the group in the past week, and it's all very overwhelming. So it's just very encouraging to see so many good things going on with God's work here. It's very motivating. It's very humbling. Um, and we're studying a topic that kind of relates to this with understanding Christ's church. Um, we're a bit into the series now, so we'll do some review. Um, I just kind of assume that We'll have brethren here who haven't been here in the past with the series. But also, this, this is a series that I think it's very helpful to just really get these things burned into our brains. And just repetition is, is very helpful. Um, and it's important to study these things even repetitiously from time to time. I, I gave a series extremely similar to this a few years ago. I've, I've modified the lessons just slightly um, for this time around. But there's been multiple millennia since we see the New Testament church beginning in the Bible. And in that multiple millennia time, uh, apostasy and, and lies that convey themselves as truth um, have a long time to cultivate, to spread. Um, and lies are, are most deceptive when they're using truth as their platform, right? And I think that's what we see very commonly is religiously, Lies thrive because they use truth as their platform for deception. Maybe another way to think about it, um, someone was talking about this in Indiana when Eve and I were there, that truth is most dangerous, or rather, lies are most dangerous, rather. A lie is most dangerous when it's closest to the truth. And obviously with the church, we see all sorts of different teachings and practices and organization in the world but we still have what the Bible says. And so the obligation we have, what God is calling us to do, is just to be to care enough and to have enough love for God where we, we just humble ourselves to be willing to accept and, and listen to the simplicity of what God has to say. So we're going to be talking this morning about distinctions and fellowship, distinctions between the universal and local church and fellowship and fellowship in the universal and local church. But we'll start with, with review. And I'd really encourage you, if... if these things are challenging. Um, just please be willing to talk about these things. You know, there could be better ways to say or present these things. Um, so I'm willing to listen to any, any other thoughts anyone may have or 
better ways of thinking through these things, but we just need to be engaged Bible students. We always should be striving to be more thoughtful about God's word. We should want to understand better what God has called us to do and to be together. We should always be willing to learn more and to think more about these things, to restudy them. So first, really as a foundation, we spent the first lesson defining the word church. You'd think if if we're wanting to understand the church, defining terms is obviously going to be very important, right? So the word church, uh, it's defined in various ways today. And if you look in the dictionary for it, Webster's, um, actually not a single definition is actually correct in the modern Webster's dictionary. So it helps to go back to a biblical definition. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which simply refers to a gathering of citizens who are coming from their homes into a public place or simply an assembly. Ecclesia, the word for church, it's just a noun that refers to a group of individuals. It's not a verb. It's not an event that we go to. It's referring to a group of people. And with that, this can think be challenging with the modern way this word is used. Ecclesia, rather church, is actually not even a religious word. It's not a word that refers to a building where people are meeting. It's not a verb, but it's also not necessarily even a religious word. So in the Bible, in Acts chapter 19, in the first lesson again, we looked at how the word church, ecclesia, was actually translated for a group of people who were forming a riotous crowd (laughs) in Acts chapter 19. And then in verse 39 of that chapter, there was a city council who were referred to as an ecclesia. And then in verse 41, the people dismissed the ecclesia, the church. So church is not even necessarily a religious word. It's, it's simply a word that refers to a group of individual people. And it's very important that we just really set our minds on that and have that really burned into our minds. Now, Jesus' church, Jesus' group, Jesus' people, they are referred to in two ways in the Bible, in two very simple ways. The first is the universal or worldwide church. Matthew 16, verse 18, when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that upon this rock I will build my church. And when Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't speaking of just a localized group in one location but that Jesus would build his group of people from that time onward all over the world in all cultures for all time from that point on. But then obviously you have local churches or people who are in a geographical location working together. We see that throughout the New Testament, but just an example is Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. So what we'll see in this lesson, as we've seen in the last one, is There are not multiple universal churches. There's only one. But with local churches, there are very many of those. And so you have the universal church that is spoken to, and then you have also the local church. Now, most problems in understanding the nature of Jesus' group of people, his church, really stems from not noticing, not recognizing, or just willfully neglecting the the distinction that exists between these. And by... Understanding the nature, most problems of it, what I mean is problems in practice, problems in organization, problems in worship come from not understanding the very clear 
very simple distinction that exists in the New Testament between these two groups that constitute Jesus' group of people. So as another part of review, um, I just want to kind of go over again, what is the universal church? You know, in the world, people will say, the church is so divided today. And what they're saying is there are so many different denominations, you know, the, the church is just so divided. So here on the board, you have the yellow line, which I'll always have the yellow line referring to somebody's fellowship with Jesus universally. So is the church just all denominations? Is it the Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Lutheran, Catholic, Baptists, etc., etc.? Well, it can't be. And it's very simple. Church, by definition, is not a group of groups. It's impossible for the church to be denominations. It's just, it betrays the fundamental definition of the word. Church is not a group of groups. It's not an institution, and it's not a group of institutions. And church, by definition, is anti-denominational. And that's something, again, we need to get circled into our mind again and again. Church is not just non-denominational in its definition. It is anti-denominational in its definition. Well, and here's a misunderstanding I've had in my past. Is the church all sound local churches? Well, and really for the same reason, that, that can't be the case. Because, again, church is not a group of groups. The universal church is not an institution or even a group of institutions. Sound congregations, congregations that are even sound in their practice, in their teaching, they are not the universal church. Individual people are the universal church. And then one of the last examples of common misunderstanding of the universal church is those dedicated to the church. And it can't be this. It can't just be people dedicated to a church no matter what it's practicing or teaching. They're just loyal to maybe their brand or their group. Because the church is not our mediator. He's not our salvation. The church is not who or what saves us. That's only Jesus who has the power to save. The church is also not our mediator. Only Jesus has the power to mediate for us. So that's, that's his role. And so the church universal is composed of individual people who are in fellowship with Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 28, or verse 38 rather, after the first sermon is preached on the day of Pentecost about Jesus seated at the right hand of God, after his crucifixion and resurrection, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 41, it mentions that in that day, uh, those who received his words were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls. And verse 47 of the same chapter uses that same language that God added to the church that day, those who were being saved. And so the, the universal church are simply individuals. Here we have Greg, Stan, and Mary, uh, these three people whose names don't exist in this congregation here. Um, They're in fellowship with Jesus. A local church, in the same chapter, in verse 42 through 46, we see those Christians who had received God's word, who were baptized into Christ and put into fellowship with him, we see them willfully involving themselves in common identity and work. So the orange circle is their common identity, that Jesus will refer to a church in unison. He'll say, to the church. But when Jesus is referring to a church, he'll refer to the individuals within it as well. And so their common work and their common identity doesn't mean that they lose their individuality in a local setting with other Christians. They still maintain their individual fellowship with Christ, and that is of primary importance. So the yellow circle is them involving themselves in this common work. 
So here's how we pictured all of this last week. And again, if, if you have any questions about this or if there are some ideas here that you think are worth challenging, um, just please know that I, I just would be so happy to hear that and talk about that. These are, these are things that they're just so good to, to listen, to talk about it, to, to dig into God's word more deeply, to think about. But what we saw last week is those who are dead in Christ, even though death may separate them from working with Christians locally, Death does not separate people from Jesus universally, right? So in 1 Thessalonians, we saw that those who are dead in Christ were still a part of the body of Christ. In Corinth, we saw that there was a church there, which Corinth had all sorts of things messed up about them, but particularly in chapter 5, they were working with somebody and they were involving somebody in their identity as a local church who was not in fellowship with Jesus. So you notice there are three circles and obviously Corinth had more than three people. But this bottom third circle, you notice, it's a part of their identity, a part of their work, but there's no line connecting him to Jesus. And so Paul said, you have made a mistake. You need to disfellowship yourselves from this person who is not in fellowship with Jesus, right? And in Sardis, we saw Jesus referring to a church as being dead. But he recognized, notice the minority who are in connection with Jesus. There were a few in that church locally who had not soiled their garments. And he said, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So there's an uncomfortable position where a church as its identity is dead by Jesus' definition. But still, there are individuals within that dead local church who are still in fellowship with Jesus. And then finally, last week we looked at Paul and the eunuch and Demetrius as examples of people who for circumstances beyond their control were not able to be in fellowship with local Christians, but they were still in fellowship with Jesus universally. So not being a part of a local church may not necessarily mean you're not in fellowship with Jesus. Being a part of a local church, being involved with the local church, also does not necessarily mean you're in fellowship with Jesus. So again, just to outline the importance of that identity, and again, seeing that there's no room for denominations in the design in the Bible for the church universally or locally. It's not the Baptist church here and the Lutheran. It's simply people working together locally with each other under common identity and common work. So the lesson for today. We're going to be going over some distinctions in fellowship. And this is, again, just kind of trying to bring more and more structure, more and more clarity with what the Bible teaches about the nature of the church. So what we're going to do is, in distinctions of fellowship, we're just going to compare some things that are true about the universal church and some things that are true about the local church that are different from one another. So we're going to start with the number of churches. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it says there is one body. Now, is there only one local church, which the church is the body? Is there only one local church, or is there only one universal church? And obviously, you know, it's on the board. Um, But there's only one universal church. Whereas we've already talked about in Galatians 1 and 2, and think of the churches that were in Rome, the church that was in Corinth, the church that even here in Ephesus, there are many local churches. And so with this distinction, in the universal church, This one universal body is composed of many individuals who may be in various conditions. 
Some people may be more mature in their faith. Some people may have more knowledge in their faith. Some people may have more understanding of how to practice love in their faith. But in the universal church, there may be many different individuals in many different places who are in various conditions in their faith and their relationship with Christ. Locally, local churches are composed of many groups, and those groups may be in various conditions. Even with the verse here, the churches of Galatia, we're in a very bad condition, right? The church at Corinth in the first letter, it was in a bad condition. And usually there's some condition within a local church that needs to be immediately addressed in its issue. But that's not always the case. And so some local churches have some serious problems that need to be addressed. In Corinth, they were involved in prostitution. There were doctrinal teaching that they had uh, misunderstood or misapplied. There were practices congregationally in their assemblies that they were abusing, but Paul still referred to them as a church of God, a church of Christ, people belonging to God together. So that, that's a distinction. One universal body, many local congregations. Well, how about entry and enrollment? How do you get into the universal church? How do you get into a local church? Go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 47. I do want to read this verse again. This is, again, another important thing to just have circling in our minds. I mentioned last time, last week, it may be impossible to overstate the importance of Acts chapter 2. Um, this, this chapter is where you see the work of Christ culminating together in fulfilling so many of the prophecies that have been given in the past about what God would do when his Messiah would come and reign in heaven. We see the church beginning in its foundation here, and in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, The people who had received his word were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's an important distinction. In the universal church, man cannot add you to it. Only God has the power to add people into the universal body of Christ. I've heard it said this way. This may kind of sounds strange, but I think it's very helpful. You cannot join the universal church. Again, because only God can add you to it. Man cannot make their own terms for joining the universal church. Man cannot put you into the universal church. God creates the terms for that fellowship. God creates terms for enrollment. And we see in Acts chapter 2, those terms are outlined in knowing Christ, hearing the message of the gospel, repenting after believing, and being baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God was then adding those individuals into his body as they were being saved. Now in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, since we're in Acts, go ahead and turn a few pages over. But the apostle Paul, after he was baptized and added into the universal body of Jesus Christ, he eventually made his way back to Jerusalem, a city where he was well known. And in Jerusalem, uh, the city where he had been persecuting Christians, in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. So Paul was not being accepted into fellowship with local Christians, but was he still a part of the universal church? And obviously he was. So, locally, 
people must be accepted into fellowship by the local saints. And so God makes no mistakes in adding people to the body. When somebody is saved, God puts them into the universal church. But locally, Christians need to accept each other willfully into fellowship for that common work and common identity. So that's a difference between the universal church and its fellowship and a local church with its fellowship. How about composition? The makeup of the universal church and the local church. Turn to 1 John. We'll be coming back to 1 John um, again and again in the lesson. So again, if you have your Bibles marked there already, or if you don't have them marked there already, I would encourage you to just place a, a marker in 1 John. But in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he said, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So in the universal church, nobody is in fellowship with Jesus who is lost, who is living in sin. Whereas in a local church, what we've seen in our illustrations already with Corinth, with the church in Sardis, a local church can make mistakes and often does make mistakes. So in Revelation chapter 3, the majority of the Christians in Sardis were lost. And again, Jesus told the church that they were dead as a church, despite the fact that there were Christians there in the minority still in fellowship with Jesus. So in a local sense, there can be and there may be lost people in a local church. Jesus makes no mistakes. Local Christians may make mistakes. Local Christians can hide sin from one another. But we cannot hide sin from Jesus universally, right? So that's a distinction between the local and the universal. We can deceive and lie to our brethren. We cannot deceive or lie to Jesus. Another distinction. Can the universal church and the local church be divided? Well, look at 3 John verses 9 through 12 again. Just a few pages over in your Bible. 1 and 2 and 3 John are incredibly short letters. Um, 3 John may not even take up a page in your Bible. But in verses 9 and 10, you have a man named Diotrephes. It says, Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So again, okay, locally, Christians need to willfully receive and accept one another into fellowship. But what was Diotrephes doing here? He was not receiving the brethren. And in verse 11 and 12, you have a man named Demetrius, who it seems was a victim of Diotrephes' wickedness. And John gives his testimony in verse 12 that Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth and from John himself, and it seems the other apostles. So, because Diotrephes was not receiving people into the local church, like Saul not being received by Jerusalem, that didn't mean that Demetrius now was not a part of the universal church. So, man does not have the power to divide the universal church. And it's impossible for the universal church to be divided. Because the only division that can happen universally is Jesus disassociating himself from an individual because of their sin. 
So universally, man cannot divide the universal church. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.19. This is another difference between the universal and the local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 19. We'll start, in verse, we'll start in verse 18 here. So the Corinthians were a very divided church. You find that out in chapter 1. That they were a group that had almost like the seed of denominational thinking, thinking in categories or creating categories. You know, some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And Paul would say, were they crucified for you? Is Christ divided? Again, urging them to only define themselves by the category of Christ. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 and 19, though. So he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So while the universal church cannot be divided and man does not have the power to divide it locally, a local church can be divided. And people do have the power to divide Christians against one another. And scripture warns us about those who sow discord among brethren, right? So sometimes the church can be divided because of sowing discord or just bad attitudes and arrogance. But in verse 19, sometimes there can be positive divisions where it could be that we need to divide because of somebody is teaching something false or advocating something that is against the truth. And so sometimes Christians divide because they must divide. Um, and in Corinth, he's saying there of necessity sometimes must be divisions that those who may be approved may become evident. So the universal church, again, man cannot divide the universal church. But locally, with Christians working together, there can be divisions. And again, the responsibility we see over and over again is for Christians to work together in a way that is rooted in universal fellowship with Jesus to reveal the truth of that fellowship and to grow in the truth of that fellowship. How about leadership and oversight? Leadership and oversight. By this I mean... Uh, groups of leadership or institutions of leadership. Well, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23. And this, this is a great difference in the composition of leadership and oversight universally compared to locally. Uh, so again, leadership and oversight is, is a distinction between the universal and local. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 22 and 23. So it reads, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Universally, there's only one pastor, right? The idea of shepherd, pastor, bishop, all of that is really the same, um, the same idea, that Jesus is the one shepherd who rules over the, over the universal church. There is no earthly government that exists under him and then they exercise oversight over another governing group. There's simply Jesus as shepherd ruling from heaven over his universal church. So remember in Revelation where the church of Sardis is mentioned. You have seven, seven different churches. And Jesus doesn't, in reference to those churches, 
talk to a group of men or women who are in a position of leadership over another group of Christians and they talk to that group of Christians and then they have another group. Now, Jesus speaks directly to the individual groups that need to repent or change or hold fast and endure. So one pastor, one shepherd ruling in heaven without any additional earthly government. Just something to think about as maybe an aside with some of this. Usually denominations begin, categories begin, because people overstep the biblical design of leadership and oversight. What they want to do is they want to have oversight over multiple groups. And even what I found in the world, groups that claim to be non-denominational are really just mini-denominations. You have one group with a leadership group that they have one campus, and then they'll have a satellite campus, and then when they grow big enough, they'll have another satellite campus. And the original leaders of the one group are exercising leadership over all the other groups. And so even if it's not as large as maybe a denomination like the Baptist Church or whatever, it's still in its own small way just another denominational model, which is very, very common today. So you just you don't see that, and there's no room for that in the biblical model. Here's what we have in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to turn just one book of the Bible over to the, the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So notice, he's talking to a local group of Christians who are geographically working together in common work and identity in the region of Philippi. So he's addressing a local church here, including the overseers and deacons. Overseers would be pastors by another title. They may be bishops by another title. Again, all of these titles referring to the same work of leadership. In the Bible, what you have is pastors, multiple, not singular, not one pastor who is the pastor, the lead pastor, the governing pastor. There are always pastors, plural, and deacons who only oversee, who only lead and serve on a local level. That is only what you find in the Bible. You never see pastors or deacons who are overseeing multiple groups of people under their oversight, only locally, right? Um, And just, again, as another aside, oftentimes when I'm talking with people in the world, um, when they find out that I'm a preacher, they'll say, oh, you're a pastor. And I'll say, well, no, I'm, I'm not a pastor, I'm a preacher. And they say, well, same thing, right? Well, no, it's not. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, you find that deacons and pastors are men who meet certain qualifications and are appointed by the church where they are serving. They do not start a church and then appoint themselves at the very beginning as the pastor of the church. They are appointed by the group because they meet the qualifications and they are eager to serve according to God's will. Pastors and deacons who only serve locally. So that's another distinction. And those pastors and deacons only serve in a way defined by the one pastor in heaven. And those local pastors and deacons are only, again, serving on a local level and nothing more. Otherwise, the pattern in scripture is being, um, is being breached and violated. How about judgments among members? So this is something we've kind of covered a little bit. But if you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Um, we looked at this last week. It says... 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So I don't know the condition of every Christian everywhere in the world. So one thing we've talked about is it, the more we understand the nature of the church, we know we can't make broad generalizations. We can't say, you know what our problem is? Or you know what we do? Unless you mean locally, you don't know what you're saying. And sometimes people say, you know what our problem is? You know what we do that's wrong? Or, you know, we really shouldn't do that. And sometimes they're referring to the universal church or churches of Christ and their experience. And they overstep uh, generalizations they can make. So we need to be careful with our language. We don't know the condition of every person who belongs to Jesus. God knows who are his and he always makes the right judgments. Now we've looked locally with Diotrephes, with Sardis, with the church at Corinth. A local church can make mistakes in their judgment. And so we have to do our best to be diligent students of God's word, diligent followers of Jesus, so that we are doing our best prayerfully to not make those mistakes. And this is the importance, again, of having an established agreement of who's working with the group. We want to make sure that as a church, we are keeping 11, as much as we know to, as much as we can, 11 of righteousness and holiness within our group. We need mutual accountability locally. But again, a local church can make mistakes. The universal church, Jesus, never makes mistakes. So we just have to think more personally and more intimately in our thoughts and in our language. It's not we universally, it's we locally, it's I more than anything. The plank is always in my eye more than it is in yours. So finally, I want to conclude the lesson um, just really simply maybe visualizing this a little bit easier. Um, if you'll turn back to 1 John again, I just want to point out a couple of things that I think are very, very helpful. And, and again, just trying to understand and visualize this, have structure and have clarity. In 1 John, you'll notice in verse 3, when he's talking about Jesus being manifested, he says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have from him and announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in, dar- in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So the idea is this, is universally here you have Greg and Stan. What First John is teaching is universally when Greg and Stan have a working relationship with Jesus. They aren't just baptized into Christ, they're walking in the light with Jesus. They have an active and working relationship with Jesus. So the arrow down is Jesus having fellowship with Greg, with Stan. The arrow up is Greg and Stan reciprocating this bond covenantally. And there is an active relationship. And what First John is teaching here, look at verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, verse 7. That fundamentally, before anything else, this universal fellowship with Jesus is the basis for our local fellowship together. Fellowship in the New Testament is not just a social term. It doesn't mean just eating together, having fun together. Fellowship in Scripture is a spiritual term. Fellowship in Scripture is based in, more than anything else, our relationship with Jesus. And when we have fellowship together, scripturally, 
That doesn't just mean we spend time together. It means that we have fellowship with Jesus first and with one another. That is continuously what you see in the New Testament. So Greg and Stan are able to have a working relationship together because of their fellowship with Jesus first. Now, go over to chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and then we'll begin to kind of illustrate this a little bit more on the board. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The idea is this. What if Greg had no universal fellowship with Jesus, but Stan did, and they're trying to work together? Well, if Greg and Stan are trying to work together, but one of them has no universal relationship with Jesus, then Stan needs to change his relationship with Greg. Because what he needs to show Greg is, if he's not going to have fellowship with Jesus, their fellowship cannot remain the same either. Because the basis of their relationship, the basis of their fellowship, is in Jesus. Another illustration. So we'll go back and start here. What if Greg and Stan, they have universal relationship with Jesus, but they are refusing to work together. They are disregarding the relationship. They are unwilling to maybe reconcile some dispute that's happened. Well, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, what this does is it either will endanger or eliminate their universal relationship with Jesus. So in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he's not just saying, this is all that matters. If you have universal relationship with Jesus, don't worry about other Christians, don't worry about your brethren. You know, you do your thing, you do the best you can. The teaching of the New Testament is, if we are to claim that we love God, we must strive to prioritize our working relationship together. Look at chapter 4, just the last few verses of 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 20. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, John kind of circles around these points in many different ways. He's really making a couple core points and spending five chapters just circling around these core points. Uh, chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So again, here's what we see as a pattern in the New Testament. Christians who have fellowship with Jesus, they have an active and working relationship with Jesus, and because of the love of Jesus, they understand that just like in uh, chapter 4 we just read, um, verse 19 even, we love because he first loved us. Because Jesus has loved us, because he has built a bridge to gap the separation between us and God the Father, we in turn then, we prioritize and we love one another. We serve each other, we work together, we identify together, and we do that because of our universal relationship with Jesus. And that's what motivates our relationship together. So the invitation this morning is really very simple. Um, God is inviting you into his light. And if you don't have fellowship with Jesus, the reason why you would stay disassociated from him is because you're blind. And you don't see the glory of what God is either offering or what you don't have because you don't have Jesus Christ. So the invitation is to consider the riches of what Jesus is offering in his death and resurrection, what God is offering in him. 
But the invitation is also if, if you are not striving to prioritize and work with the brethren, the invitation is to let God open your eyes to see the glory of how that relationship manifests the greater glory of our relationship with Jesus in a way impossible otherwise. And so if there's, if there's anything we can do for you this morning at all, please make it known while we stand and sing our invitation song.